This podcast is sponsored by Echelon. Echelon is the affordable way to get the workout equipment, the workout community, and an instructor's motivation right in the comfort of your own home. With Echelon, you can work at any time, day or night, and crush your fitness goals. And right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS to 818181 to get up to $800 off MSRP. Once again, just text GENIUS to 818181. Quick disclaimer, message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, David Galloway. He's an honorary professor of surgery, uh, part of the College of Medical, Veterinary, and Life Sciences at University of Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, He's a former president of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow as well. And we're going to talk about complexity of life and the possibility of design and not just, uh, you know, random happenstance. So thank you for coming, David. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing very well, Richard. Yeah. You know, what's been your background? How did you get into this area of science? Okay. Well, let me just explain a little bit of my background. I think you covered some of the sort of major highlights in the introduction. But So I, I was trained in medicine and surgery, mainly in Scotland, uh, but also spent some time in, in London, and I did some specialist training there. And perhaps one of the highlights of my career was to work in a large cancer center in New York City. So I worked in the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center as a surgical fellow. Uh, so that kind of rounded out my technical surgical training. But my, my background has been in, in basic and clinical medical science. And uh, my career has been principally in surgical oncology. So my surgical practice was mainly surgical gastroenterology. And I, I worked mainly in the west of Scotland in Glasgow in academic practice there and retired from the NHS back in 2015. But, but throughout my, my time in the life sciences, if you like, I've been absolutely fascinated by some of the background material that underpins the diversity and the complexity of biology. So, so for example, in my, in my research work, I did a fair bit in clinical practice, but was also deeply involved at attempting to unravel aspects of colorectal carcinogenesis. Why do normal cells change into cancer cells? And I know you've done quite a few podcasts with people who've looked at different aspects of that. I was principally at that time looking at cell kinetics, but uh, trying to understand the influence of various promoters and inhibitors to, to, to better understand the mechanism of cancer cell generation. So, so apart from all of that, I've had a long-standing interest in, in how life has come to be the way it is. And, and actually from that spins on to the, the questions of ultimate reality, I suppose. And that's why I, I began to put together some of my thoughts and, and write them down. What have you observed? I mean, I guess I'll give you my standpoint first, is that the more I learn about biology and about life and about the complexity of things, it's just so like we can't even make an organelle we can't even get close to a subsection of one cell 
it's it's so complicated and so sophisticated it's like insane so it, it points out to me like there's no way random processes caused this or created this but what are your thoughts yeah, well, I think I'd, I would probably draw that same conclusion, but I, I guess, I mean, you've encapsulated part of my argument in a couple of sentences. I've taken a couple of books to to try and expand that and, and write it down, but it's been a fascinating journey, you know. I guess when I was a student, I became aware of, of the scientific literature around some of these debates that were going on back in the early 70s and 80s. And actually, I used to, I used to get a hold of Scientific American, the periodical, and read that fairly avidly. And, and in those days, you know, the great deal of speculation about how life came to be the way it is was, was headline news in Scientific American regularly. And of course, the neo-Darwinian story of random mutation and natural selection was pretty much the accepted paradigm. You know, there were headline characters like Theodosius Dobzhansky and Ernst Mayer, <clears throat> iconic, you know, evolutionary biologists. But it's been fascinating because... I think the cracks began to appear and the kind of view that you've just articulated became even more obvious. And by November of 2016, in the Royal Society in London, you may have been aware of the, the uh, conference that they held there, which was titled New Trends in Evolutionary Biology. And that just basically highlighted the fact that some of the data that was now being accumulated, mainly from molecular biology and so on, was a very poor fit with the kind of conventional presentation of, of evolutionary mechanisms. And so there's been a gathering momentum for what some people have called the extended synthesis, sometimes referred to as a systems biology approach. And this attempts to accommodate various aspects of demonstrable mechanisms that don't fit the neo-Darwinian synthesis. So such things as natural genetic engineering and the reality of mobile genetic elements, the ability of the genome to kind of reorganize. It's no longer thought to be a, a read-only, but a read-write system instead. And even the recognition of where all the information in life comes from. You know, the, the information repository in nucleic acids is phenomenal, but, but there's also a huge range of epigenetic information as well, which is only now being, being tackled and attempts being made to understand it. So, so my view is that you know, when you look at the wider scientific endeavor, if you try and bottle that into some kind of purely materialistic explanation, I've drawn the same conclusion as you. It just is not a tenable argument. And so that's what I've written about in, in these little books that, uh, that we've produced. What biological systems inspire the most curiosity in you, the most fascination? Is it the cell? Is it, you know, larger structures, smaller ones? Is it in people? Is it, you know, where does your interest really lie? Okay, so I guess I would say that my interest was stimulated from the sort of clinical realm. And I've endeavored to try and, and tackle this whole area from a sort of clinical background. Um, so, so I suppose if you look at the complexity of the way people operate, especially when things go wrong, it opens up an understanding of incredible systems, you know, so the sort of getting beyond the cellular to the sort of tissue organization systems that make up immunology, for example, or endocrinology, or the various interrelated, balanced, sophisticated, beautifully interlocking and interdependent physiological systems, the biochemical pathways, even neuroscience. So I've tried to sort of dip into to all of these different areas. But, you know, that's only one example of the kind of complexity that we see in life. 
And, and I think Mike Behe, whose name you mentioned a few moments ago, actually captured this whole idea at the biochemical level by talking about irreducibly complex systems, you know, that couldn't possibly have emerged as a process of gradual evolutionary change step by step. And actually, when you think about it, it's not just at the molecular level, because that would apply to endocrinology, to the operation of the pituitary gland and all its, its uh, servant glands in the body. It would apply to, to the amazing way, you know, just think for a moment about the way that the human circulatory system has to change when a baby's born. You know, the baby is utterly dependent on placental oxygen. And when it's born, the cord is clamped, that oxygen supply is switched off instantly, and the baby's lungs then have to fill with air, and all sorts of incredible engineering goes on in a matter of seconds in order to maintain the oxygen delivery to the essential organs. And that, for me, has just been, it's kind of irreducible complexity, but written at an anatomical level. And I think people haven't necessarily really thought that through. And so I, I've taken the view that it's been important to try and highlight that and just show where that points. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Do you see that? Well, here's a question I've had. So I would guess, I mean, looking online, there's about 100 or 120 billion people that have ever lived. And in most of them, not all, but most, you know, you have one liver, not two. You have two eyes, not three. The eyes are in the same spot. The liver is in opposition to, the, opposition to the pancreas and located on the right side of the body, not the left. And where does that structural knowledge uh, reside? Does it reside in the genes or some nebulous place we don't know about? You know, just as one, for instance. Okay, so, so you opened a whole element of difficulty there because what we're really talking about body, is body plans. And body plans have been the focus of a great deal of research and, and concern. So where does the information come that produces any kind of animal body plan? Uh, and the reality is that most mammals will have a pretty similar body plan in terms of their skeletal structure, in terms of their muscular structure and so on, in terms of the kind of organs that you've spoken about. Um, so it's, it's really thought that the best understanding of this is that there's an information repository um, which allows for the control and development in an incredible balanced, nuanced and careful way that produces uh, the result which we recognize as, as the human form. And the same would apply to, to other animal forms as well. It's absolutely fascinating, but almost certainly it has a textual basis. And by that, I mean a sort of digital textual basis, because essentially when you look at nucleic acids, DNA and RNA, I mean, they are basically text carriers. They are basically not just analogous of languages. They are languages, and they have essentially the equivalent of an alphabet and a, and a sentence structure. And a, what's, what's very interesting is that getting beyond all that, and I think this is the, the torpedo that, that holds the kind of naturalist ship below the waterline, is that the whole thing looks like it's intentional. It looks like it's purpose-driven. And this was, this was one of Behe's points too, of course, that he said that uh, when you look at these micromolecular machines, they, they look as if they're, they're components that are put together with a purpose, with an endpoint. And when you look at DNA, it certainly behaves that way. It looks like it represents something beyond itself. It represents something with not just structure, but function and teleology and, and a real sense of intentionality and purpose. And I think you just don't get that from particles. You need to have some kind of, not, not apparent or illusory design, but genuine design to explain it. 
I've been working too hard and not working out enough. I wanted to get in shape, but I don't have time to get to the gym. Echelon brings the gym home to me. So right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS, G-E-N-I-U-S, to 818181 to get up to $800 off MSRP. Once again, text GENIUS to 818181, and message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Well, I'll ask you like a really easy question. Like, how do you think life began? Nobody knows the answer to that. Well, what's, um, what's your speculation? Well, I know there are all sorts of theories out there. I, I don't think any of them have come close to being anything like acceptable. We have no idea. Uh, when you begin to look at the sort of essential components of what we would need to get life started, I mean, even if you had all the components together, and actually you can do this experiment, you can take... Uh, a tissue culture or cells that have all the components already there functioning, if you kill those cells, if you tear their cell membranes or destroy their cell membranes, all the chemicals are still there, but you've got no life. So the origin of life is a conundrum, which uh, I think will almost certainly defy our ability to get anywhere close to an answer for the foreseeable future. Now, you know, never say never in this business, and I used to say that to my students all the time, and there have been many examples of scientific pioneers who, you know, were onto something and had to fight an uphill battle in order to get their message through. And, and those that stuck to their guns were often proved to be right, even though they faced fierce opposition. But I think the idea that this is in some way settled science, that going back to the 50s when Miller and Urey did their work in Chicago, you know, that that was the kind of, that was the death knell of the idea that, that life had to have some kind of designing intelligence behind it. I think they, they did very little to advance the cause. They managed to get a few organic chemicals and some amino acids. They didn't get homochiral forms. They didn't get anything like the complexity that you would require for intermediate metabolism or for nucleic acid information control. I mean, it's just incredible to think that that happened spontaneously without any direction. And to be honest with you, we have no idea of whatever mechanism that could possibly be at the present time that would give us any kind of answer to that. Do you think that uh, the cells have some level of cognition, no matter uh, how limited or alien or different? Well, I know people talk about this, you know, this is almost not quite a panpsychic approach, but some have argued that in the cosmos, what is ultimately absolutely fundamental is consciousness. And of course, when you begin to think about consciousness or even language, we don't have much of a clue about where either of these things come from. And to say that they just emerge is just kicking the can down the road. It, it doesn't answer any kind of question about mechanism. Or, um, well, like, like you know, that's weird as I'm cognitive, so far as I've heard. And But what, why then would the cells that compose me not be? Why would then the microbiome that composes me not be? But I am somehow magically, but only the cells in my brain have this specialized ability, which brings consciousness, but all the other cells in me are just machines. It doesn't really make sense to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think anyone knows the answer to these questions. These are, these are just almost beyond our ability to address. And I guess the argument I would make is this, that, you know, you can, you can try as hard as you can from a naturalistic point of view to see if you can explain these things, but you run into difficulties at just about every turn. Because what you've got to be able to do, if you're going to take a naturalistic view of all of this, somehow you've got to be able to explain how, first of all, nothing produces everything, how non-life produces life, however you want to define that, 
how random chaos produces the kind of fine tuning that we see, how the chaos actually results in specified information, how unconsciousness produces consciousness, how incoherent neural activity can end up with rationality. We just we don't have answers to these big enigmata. I mean, they're just huge problems that we we can't properly explain. And I think to, to try and argue that we have any kind of idea of a mechanism that allows for a bottom-up, you know, natural, random chance, accidental type explanation just genuinely doesn't fit the bill. And so that for that reason, I think it's not a surprise to me that people have sought a top-down answer. Something something has directed the process. There is some ultimate consciousness, some ultimate cognitive power there which might explain it, because we certainly don't have an explanation from naturalism. So quite, quite what that causative power is, we can, we can debate, of course, and, and people theologically have debated that for, for generations. Well, if we have no idea why is, I would say probably 95% of the people I talk to, I know I don't talk to everybody, but I've talked to a lot, uh, 95% appear to still be the, you know, operating under the modern synthesis or neo-Darwinism, and they frown upon or afraid of or dispel as like conspiracy theory or myth or BS, anything but the modern synthesis. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think, um, well, the modern synthesis has been shown to be deficient. I mean, it still, it still, of course, gets trotted out and it appears in textbooks. And it's just so frustrating when it's very clear that even naturalistic evolutionary biologists, people that don't, uh, would never consider themselves to be design proponents in any way, shape or form, they nevertheless realized the the process of the so-called modern synthesis is is unable to explain some of the observable science that we now have at our fingertips. So so how do we explain it? Well, it's, it's really very difficult, but, you know, the kind of things that don't fit, and it seems to me there are, there are several of them that absolutely don't fit. Um, so origin of life is one, and we've spoken about that. But what about all the information that underpins the systems that we've been discussing already. That information has to come from somewhere. And we know this is not, this is not some kind of God of the gaps argument. This is a, not an argument from ignorance in any sense. This is an argument based on what we do know. And we do know from repeated experience that when you have complex specified information, which, which we have in DNA, which we have in the epigenome and so on, which we even have in the metabolome, when you've got that level of sophistication and information, we know that the only source of that is some kind of intelligent guiding source. So, so it really points in that direction, not a god of the gaps, but this is what we understand to be the source of information. You don't have language or information from any other source than a mind. And so it rather suggests that there has to be some kind of incredible mind behind the whole game. And there are other things that don't fit, of course, be his, be his irreducible complexity that doesn't fit a, a Darwinian sort of gradualistic approach. Even the fossil record that the, the materialists will often appeal to, I mean, it just, it just doesn't fit the facts, you know. And, and uh, I think for these, for these four or five reasons, it's, it's dead in the water, in my view. And I've tried to lay that argument out as clearly as I can. Yeah, how do you think, I mean, first of all, the definition of a species is... Uh... It seems, to be, it seems to get hazy when you look at viruses or bacteria or even, you know, macroscopic holobiont animals. But how do you think speciation occurs? Is it, have we ever seen, has science or people ever seen a new species emerge? Or is never it just observed. all never been observed? So 
never been observed. But I, it was interesting. You, so you had a podcast with a, a medical scientist, I think from Wayne State quite recently. And he was talking about... Uh, Henry Heng, yeah. Henry Heng. And he was speaking about speciation in cancer cells. That, that, to my mind, is not the kind of speciation that we're thinking about here. We're talking about different species of animal, not some kind of different sort of karyotype, which is apparent in a subpopulation of cancer cells. So I think we have to be careful about the way we define the terms. But the, but the kind of speciation, grand scale, you know, molecules to man speciation has never been observed. So, so what I would say is I, there is no doubt that you, you can identify evolutionary change over time. There's no doubt that natural selection does something. It's not quite clear how much weight it can actually bear, maybe not anything like the kind of intellectual weight that some people want it to bear. So what, what's interesting is, well, where, where does that speciation come from? The answer is we just don't know. It's never been observed. Uh, and so, you know, it's still an open question. Well, when people talk about natural selection, it sounds like this mysterious outside force, like dark matter. But why wouldn't speciation and all this evolution come from deliberate adaptation from within the entity or the creature that is adapting to its environment? Why is it an external force? Why is it not an internal, again, perhaps cognition-based or some kind of mechanism where, you know, again, all creatures are able to adapt pretty significantly, you know, through epigenetic change, genetic change, et cetera. Yeah. Um, maybe that's the driving force of evolution, but again, it has to have a mind behind it that is doing the adaptation, not just a mechanistic response. I'm inclined to agree with that, Richard, to be honest with you, but I, I mean, I think there are many people that wouldn't wouldn't agree. I mean, I think you've probably referenced the work of, of uh, Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Elbridge before when they talked about the sort of rapid changes in speciation that you see, you know, you have a period of stasis in the fossil record. I mean, Gould, of course, was a paleontologist I think originally by training and and he identified stasis and then what appeared in geological time to represent sudden change uh, and of course he struggled with trying to understand the the mechanism for that I suppose we're getting closer to understanding how that might work when you begin to look at the adaptive change or the stress related change that can take place in the genome or in the epigenome because you see some evidence of that at least in bacterial life but whether that is is up to the task of making the kind of changes that would be necessary for huge macroevolutionary species change, I think stretches the imagination a bit. Uh, I mean, imagination has been stretched down through the centuries in the world in the world of science. So, so I wouldn't want to completely rule that out. I don't quite know what the mechanism is. No one does, but it certainly hasn't been observed in any meaningful. Sense. Yeah, it's just odd. So, I mean. It- I thought of the concept, too, of like velvet ropes, you know, like a, a nightclub. Some of them are high, very exclusive and they have these velvet ropes and you can't go beyond them, you know, to get in unless they let you in. It seems mm-hmm. like in nature, you know, we'll never get to absolute zero. We'll never get to the speed of light, it seems like. We'll never be able to resolve, you know, microscopically things in the, let's say, one nanometer or sub nanometer level. We'll never, 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 you know, all these different velvet ropes that are set up. Where do you think that comes from and why does that play a role at all into the true nature of evolution and adaptation? Yeah, well, you know, these are great imponderables. You're asking some pretty searching questions. And I I certainly don't have, have smart answers to some of these. You know, I think there is no doubt that people have begun to dig beyond a sort of scientific approach to see if they can reach into some kind of philosophical understanding or theological understanding of these things. I mean, I know you had a 
a conversation not so long ago with my friend John Lennox, and I, I listened to that conversation you had with oh, him. Oh, cool. And, and of course, he, he has uh, very convinced ideas about the strength of the relationship between faith and science. And uh, he articulates that extremely well. And of course, as a Christian theist, I would I would be inclined to share his views on this. So I think uh, you know you're, you're looking for a philosophical or theological explanation for for some of these imponderables because you simply won't get it. I don't think from any kind of. It's true to say that science is wonderful at answering the questions that science can answer, but there are some things it just can't get close to. So it doesn't get close to mathematical truth, really. It depends on that. And it doesn't get close to understanding beauty or ethics or, or other aesthetic issues. And it doesn't get close to even being able to define science itself, you know. So I think it gets itself down into almost into absurdity if you try and have a scientific proof for the endeavor of science itself, because it depends on so many other things that are, are beyond the endeavor. Uh, so you're depending, for example, almost faithfully depending on the predictability of the world, the fact that the sun ought to rise again tomorrow as it did today. But can you guarantee that? No, you can't. And so you can't absolutely prove it from a scientific point of view. There's no inductive way of demonstrating that. So so you're you're getting down into into rabbit trails which are very difficult. And and it's not a surprise that that people will then begin to look elsewhere for a theological understanding of these things. And I would certainly be strongly supportive of that approach. Well, what's, um, I don't know, what particular insights have you gathered from your, your willingness to go outside again, the modern synthesis and contemplate everything to take all comers? Like what, what things have you come up with that you feel are really valuable in your understanding of uh, how life works? Okay. So I think, I think the conclusion I would draw from all of this is that if you try and look at it from a purely materialistic point of view, it doesn't get you where you need to be. It doesn't get you very far, in fact. Uh, and so what you need to do is to go out with that. Now, this is where it begins to become controversial because we're getting into areas that people immediately raise a flag and say, oh, this is not science. Yep, that's right. It's not science as we understand it. Uh, from a materialistic or from a methodological, naturalistic point of view, you don't get the answers that you need. And so you need to look beyond that. Could there be some supernatural source? Well, it's the obvious question to ask. I mean, you'll so often hear, as I have, you probably have too, you've heard scientists talk about how what they're interested in in their endeavor is to get to the truth. Well, if the truth is not available from the blinkered methodological naturalist approach, we need to look beyond that approach. And that is why I think looking into philosophy and theology gives us a potential way of understanding it. So, so for me, everything points to the design not being apparent, but being real. If the design is real, then it implies a designer. Now, if you begin to postulate that, I accept that while the naturalistic approach has neither mechanism nor agency to explain it, at least the theological approach, while it doesn't have mechanism, it does have agency. So, we don't have an explanation for the explanation, but at least we get some way down the track of getting an explanation. And so I would be quite happy to identify myself as someone who believes that there is a God behind the universe. And that, in fact, provides much better explanatory power to explain all these things that we've been talking about and all these various conundrums and difficulties and enigmas that we don't properly understand. 
it appears to me that it must be understood by someone, by some agency. And so having an agency behind it all looks to me like it's quite a satisfactory, intellectually satisfactory answer. So um, I guess a couple more questions. Do you think that life began once or multiple times? And do you believe that it, it correlates with, you know, the first appearance of like microbial mats from like, I think, 3.8 billion years ago? What are your thoughts yeah. there? Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not an area that, that I've studied in, in any real detail, to be honest with you. And so I have to say, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think from a from a theological angle, I guess what you're asking me, was there a single creation event or were there progressive subsequent creation events? I don't know the answer to that. You don't know the answer to that. No one knows the answer to that. But what I do strongly suspect is that it didn't happen by chance and it didn't happen naturalistically without some guidance and some oversight. There's been foresight, oversight, design, structure, intentionality behind all of this. So there is some greater cognition which is required to explain it. But as to whether it happened once, several times, I don't know how you would get close to answering that question. Yeah, and another weird thing I thought of is, um, you know, if life has been continuous since the beginning, and let's say it's, you know, 3.8 billion years, what, I don't know, is there an essence or is there something that was in the first life that was passed down through every successive, you know, reproduction till it got to us? And if so, what is that? What, yeah, you know, well, what, was, what was kept, if anything? Yeah, well, because again, we, this is speculative as well. You know, I think what, what we're getting into the area here is of into the notion of universal common ancestry, I suppose. So is, is life this Darwinian tree or bush or or network or whatever, and people have tried to demonstrate it in different ways with with mixed success, I would have to say, because the trees don't seem to work particularly well. Phylogenetically, you know, you might get a tree that looks good from an anatomical point of view, but it doesn't look quite so good from a molecular point of view and so on. So, so quite what that essence is, you know, is very difficult to tell. It is interesting, though, that when you begin to list the various features of living things as opposed to inanimate things, that there, is a, there are certain uh, common threads there that, that exist, both from the sort of basic molecular level all the way through in higher forms of life to the, the sense of consciousness and self-awareness. And, and ultimately, you get into trying to have to uh, make some kind of explanation for responsibility and morality and and so on. So this is an incredibly difficult area. I, I'm not confident that even with the amazing advances that we've been able to identify, even in the last century, I'm not sure that we're going to get close to the, the inner truths of all of this uh, and deal with these questions that you're, answer, you're asking. Yeah, another one I thought of is like, where is the life in a cell? <laughs> if you started taking a cell apart, at what point is it not alive? And where is the life? Or is it a distributed property that, that is an ensemble of all the, the molecules and elements that make up a cell. Like what, what constitutes life in that sense and where is it? Yeah, very difficult. I mean, you're asking, you're asking fantastic questions, Richard, really. And I, I'm not sure that anyone could really properly answer that. You might get a philosopher that would have a stab at it. Uh, I think you would not get a biochemist to confidently tell you or a molecular biologist. It's interesting, people just get into the particular track that they follow and they become world authorities on on some enzyme or some little aspect of the complexity of life. But when you begin to ask these kind of big, grand questions, well, what is life? Well, you know, Edmund Schrodinger wrote a book of that very title back in, wasn't it the 1940s? 
where mm -hmm. people have struggled. I can remember attending my first biology class at high school, and that was one of the questions. Well, how do you define life? Where is life actually? Well, we can, it's, you know, it's like all of these things. I used to say to my, my surgical students sometimes, you know, when they're talking about their prowess or their ability to perform a particular surgical procedure, when you look at different students or different young surgeons operating, you can see some have a particular gift and are very good at something, and some are just kind of cack-handed and really struggle to make kind of coherent movements. So it's very easy to recognize incompetence, but it's actually very difficult to define competence. Now, for me, life is a bit like that. It's very easy to recognize when something is inanimate, and it's very easy to recognize that something is alive. But to define it and to define it in an all-encompassing way has proved to be very difficult over the years. Well, so I guess a lot of these questions, do you feel like they're just going to remain forever unanswered? Or do you think we're going to get close or our hand will be stayed at some point by, I don't know, we just run into a, a, a dead end or, you know, maybe even stayed by the hand of God? I don't know. Like, what, How close do you think we're going to get to answering these questions? And if we're never going to really answer them, then what do you do? You know, I, I just, I kind of struggle because you're asking questions that have been perplexing the human mind for, for generations, really. But I think, you know, if you're thinking ahead to the future, I, the one thing I'm sure of is this, the, the debate, the kind of debate that we've been discussing this evening or today, this debate will, will continue to rage. Uh, it's, it's interesting to me that people will take polarized positions. So I have attempted as best I can to look at the scientific data and not to come at it with any kind of preconceived notion. That's a very difficult thing to do. Everyone comes with their particular worldview. And so these worldviews will color the way that people will, will look at scientific information data. And actually, it's amazing to see how people will doggedly hold on to their favorite theories. You know, they'll sometimes go through incredible intellectual contortions in order to prop up or defend their philosophical commitments to a particular worldview or other. And, and it's interesting, I, whether we get closer to the answer to some of these questions, you know, look at the big issues that there used to be back in the 14th, 15th century, people like Copernicus uh, in astronomy or Vesalius in anatomy, or even in the 19th century, Lister and Pasteur or Semmelweis. I mean, these were iconic figures, almost all of these guys. The evidence finally carried the day, but every single one of them uh, sometimes were terrified of presenting their ideas or challenging the accepted paradigm. I'm quite happy to challenge the accepted paradigm. I don't know whether I'm right. I've got a very acute sense that I am more right than wrong in some of these things. Otherwise, I wouldn't be going into print with it. And it may be that a time will come when there's a tipping point. Uh, but I think it does require a degree of scientific humility. I don't know whether you've ever come across the writing of, there's a very interesting mathematician and philosopher that I've interacted with a little bit before. He's an American now living in Paris, a chap called David Berlinski. And Berlinski oh, I just saw a, a video with yeah. him. I wanted to, to speak to him if he's still alive. Oh, you, should, you should definitely try and speak to him. He, he has written a lot about the kind of, almost the pretentious nature of some aspects of the scientific endeavor. In fact, he wrote a book, I think it's called The Devil's Delusion, that, that kind of calls out the sciences in exactly that area. And he asked some of these questions, you know, are we going to get close? Are we even in the ballpark where we can get answers to the, the kind of difficult questions that you're asking me? 
And I think it's very hard to say. I don't think we are even close to some of these questions that you've been discussing. And, and it may be that, you know, the old hoary paradigms and, and currently unshakable ideas that people hold on to doggedly, it may be that it'll take a generation of academics to, to die out before these ideas die out with them, before any kind of thought revolution can begin to genuinely occur. Well, what's, uh, last question, what do you think that uh, is going to be your unique contribution to the understanding of all of this? You know, one of the things I found most frustrating, Richard, is this. As, I, as I've studied this whole area, looking at, admittedly, standing back, looking at the sort of clinical side of life and looking more basically into biochemistry and physiology and neuroscience and so on, it seems to me that there's almost a settled view which would say that a naturalistic position is the basic explanation for all of this. And so my attempt is to tackle this and to get people to ask the question, is that correct? Is that genuinely a satisfactory answer? If we follow the evidence where it leads, does it lead to those conclusions about materialism? Or maybe is theism or some kind of supernatural explanation a better intellectual endeavor? And so, I mean, I guess it comes down to trying to understand the ultimate basis of reality. You know, where we come from? What are we here for? Is it all just matter and energy? Or, or is God behind this? And so it seems to me that the door swings wide open when you follow the evidence. You really look beyond what is conventional naturalism. And I think you articulated this in one of your earlier uh, questions, that uh, you'd sort of looked at, at life and come to that sort of conclusion. Is it chance and necessity? Is that the starting point? I don't think it gets very far. So my contribution, I hope, is to is to put these books into the into the public domain and hopefully just provoke people to ask that question. Uh, I reckon that, as I said, the theist may not have a mechanism, but at least he has a, a coherent explanation in the form of agency. And it's hard to kick against that teleology when so much of the evidence points in that direction. Well, very good. Uh, David, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Okay, so I, I do have a personal website, which is uh, davidgalloway.co.uk. I've written a total of three books, actually, within the last couple of years. During the lockdown, my lockdown projects were putting these together. So yeah. the two that I've referred to this evening, one is called Follow the Science. It's available in all good booksellers, uh, certainly available online. And the other one, which is a slightly more detailed book uh, is called Design Dissected. The subtitle is, Is the Design Real? Where I've actually laid out in a bit more detail some of the areas that we've been speaking about. And the other, the other little book, just as a matter of interest, you, some of your listeners might be interested in this. I've written a book called Controlled Chaos. It's a completely different book. It's a, it's a clinical book about surgery, but it's about surgery in rural Africa. When I stopped working in the National Health Service in a, in a major academic surgical hospital, I uh, decided to spend some time volunteering in a rural mission hospital in remote, a remote corner of northwestern Zambia in a place called Chitokoloki, which is right by the Zambezi River. And I went there just to try and, and support, surgically support some of the expatriates who, who work there. I actually worked with a a delightful American surgeon from Spokane in Washington for a while, but there, there's a surgeon there who's been working there for 30 years or so, 
and he's from Northern Ireland originally and has just the most amazing set of clinical skills and practice that is just beyond belief. And so I, I used to keep a little bit of a blog every day when I was there. And uh, after several visits there, I realized I had, you know, 60,000 words. And so I, I edited it together. And it's really just some adventures, some surgical adventures, um, not great literature, but I think people would maybe enjoy it if they're interested in that sort of thing. It's called Controlled Chaos. So three books, Controlled Chaos, Follow the Science and Design Dissected. And you can get the details on my website, davidgalloway.co.uk. Excellent. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure, Richard. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, which has been sponsored by Echelon. When you're trying to reach your fitness goals, it can really help to have world-class instructors like Nicole Griffin and Michael Brown choreographing classes with music from your favorite artists like Pitbull. And you get a community of hundreds of thousands of people who can give you that extra push. Echelon gives you that. Echelon's certified fitness instructors are supportive, engaging, and fun. They really know how to get you moving. And right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners can get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS to 818181 to get $800 off MSRP. Once again, text GENIUS to 818181. Message and data rates may apply. Please see terms for details. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.